running boom of the 70s came during simpler pre-internet times. A unique cast of characters riding that wave came of age. You never knew who would show up, and races became household names, attracting capacity fields year in and year out. Co-hosts Ron Galuli, John Gorman, and Grant Whitney, inspired by the first runners reunion in 2019, speak with some of the characters of the era, share their stories, and where they are today. There's something for everyone in each installment of the Runners Reunion Podcast. Good afternoon, listeners to the Runners Reunion Podcast. We're delighted you're joining us again this afternoon for Season 3, Episode 4. We've talked about the roads. We've talked about cross-country. We're going to go back to the track for today's episode. It's a real pleasure for us to have with us from outside of Washington, D.C., a 800-meter specialist from back in the day, the mid-70s. Let me give you a little bit of his background. Our guest started running his senior year in high school at McKinley Prep. Didn't take too long. He ran a 4.15 and a 9.16, one mile, two mile, before he graduated. Went on to an illustrious career at Catholic University in the D.C. area. And I'm sure he's got a story for us. It may be a nine or is it a 10-time All-American status while at Catholic in the 800 and 1,000 primarily. In that era, he's approaching uh, 76. Uh, that time, kind of time frame, he had uh, probably one of the fastest 800 splits ever uh, in a relay, at 96, or excuse me, 1976, 10 relays, 145.8. Um, competed at the 76 Olympic trials within inc in an incredibly deep 800 meter field. And as we chart his arc from the mid 70s, 73, 74, 75, and 76, we'll have and hear some stories and some anecdotes about the late great Keith Francis, who as many of you know, Boston College uh, uh, luminary and many, and in some estimations, one of the greatest athletes ever to come through the school. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to our listeners, Mark Robinson. Mark, thanks for joining us on the Runners Reunion podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and glad to talk about some of the old days in running, talk about my old friend and competitor, Keith, a little bit, and just kind of reminisce because a lot of times you just are stuck in the present and forget how great those days were, you know, back in the past. And that's, and, and, and indeed we, we all uh, do that for sure. And that's, uh, again, that comes back to it. So, but I have to start, uh, Mark, there's gotta be a story here. Senior year in high school. I mean, by the time you're a senior year in high school, it's kind of like you've either got your plan set and whatever it is, as the next step. And you took on something totally new. Or was it new with it, the running? I'll give you the full story. So I went out for track my 10th grade year and actually got cut from the team. But I was only out for a couple of weeks. And basically, at that time at McKinley, we had a really good squad. Basically, how the cuts work is how many seats are on the bus. And so, <laughs> so I ran an 800 trial my second week out and finished sixth uh, out of seven, basically. And unbeknownst to me, that actually meant my seat on the bus was non-existent. I mean, as sidebars, I, I saw my coach, my coach Dan, a couple of years later, because it was a different coach I had my senior year of high school. And he asked me, why did I quit the team my 10th grade <laughs> Anyway, so so track was always kind of an interest in me, but, but I guess I didn't actually... Um, you know, make the team that year. But then I also found out later on that this was only for the particular meet we were going to, that I could have gone to home meets and I could have gone to other meets. But I looked at my the names on the list, didn't see my name, thought I was cut. So that was a just, but I also was a multi-sport athlete okay. and I did other sports in high school, mainly baseball. Okay. Oh, baseball. Okay. Yeah. We've had we've had a bunch of folks um, from a, a you know bunch of different uh, distances actually who who mm -hmm. uh, you know played baseball. So so suffice it to say, perhaps that junior year you were otherwise occupied by baseball. So what changed yes. your senior year? So what changed my senior year was I was looking for a fall sport. We we have 
baseball was spring at our school. We didn't have fall baseball. So fall, I just ran cross country. And mainly, I was honestly, I was running cross country just to get in shape for baseball later in the season. And what happened was I won my very first cross country race. Not only won it, but we also ended this uh, spin guard high school who was the had like a 30 meet winning streak. We actually ended the winning streak in my first race. And so anyway, so then I kind of, I hadn't totally caught the bug, but I was basically saying, oh, so I might be able to be actually decent in, in distance running or middle distance running. And then it kind of continued and kind of continued from there. Was there such a thing as indoors or were you yes. just kind of, okay. Yeah. So did you I, do I, that yeah. or? I ran indoors. I was, I would call myself mildly successful during that first indoor season. I, we, we finished third in our, in the, um, in the two mile relay for the area championships. And I'd run about And I ran about it right at two minutes. So I, I was just, I was like two minutes and 0.8 seconds or something like that. Um, so I was progressing pretty quickly, but I hadn't broken two minutes yet. But we had a good relay team. We had a good two-mile relay, a good mile relay, a good distance medley team. I didn't run the two-mile at all that indoor season. They had me mainly running shorter races. And I didn't – so I was – but outdoor season, I started – you know, I was going to run more longer races. Yeah, so, so now at least I see the connection a little bit, the cross-country – and and why maybe the mile and the two mile, but that's a still a pretty huge leap between a two minute eight hundred. Uh, so what really fast forwarded, I guess, the two mile and the mile to a level that obviously that would get on a recruiting map if if that was even a consideration. Right. I mean, and and I mean, one thing is, I think, I mean, I I did have running talent, which I maybe was unrealized prior to that, but but because I was progressing pretty quickly. I mean, two minutes is, I mean, I ran at two minutes on a, on a, on a wood floor flat in indoor, you know, in indoors. So my coach said, you'll definitely be under two minutes outdoors. And I also went to a sprint. Again, I went to a sprint school. My coach to his credit was trying to um, study middle distance and distance running so he could coach me effectively, but he was used to coaching jumpers and sprinters. And then we ended up, um, but, we, but I also had teammates who also were running well, and we had a good training group to go from indoor, transition from indoor to outdoor season. Okay. And so, but something's clicking in the mild. And now that was not right. local, if, if, if I have my notes right. That was down in Atlanta. Is that right? Right. So, what? right. I ran the 415 Atlanta, which was interesting because that was my first, my fastest time, but also my first loss. Because I was pretty much dominating running 420, 422 up up in DC. Um, when I went down there, I again saw the times. I was the slowest qualifier. I was I was the last in, invite basically. I kind of think that I I had of realized earlier in the race that I actually could run with these guys. I may have won it. I got second in that race, but I think if I'd have realized um, earlier, I could have won the race because I kind of moved late, caught everybody except the winner. And kind of said, oh, well, I guess I'm a miler. Sidebar, that year we also had a guy named Gordon Oliver, who's the fastest miler in the United States, high school miler in the United States, went to Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. And he won the Golden West race. If he'd have been there, obviously, he would have won that race too. But, and I realized I was actually beating some of the guys who I'd been reading about up to that point, which was kind of interesting. okay. So, you know, so the paper is where you're getting your news, you know, as opposed to social media of today. And so you're beginning to see some of these names and realizing that you can kind of stick. Um, just a quick question about the two mile. Was that was that a just a did you progress steadily in the two as well? Or was this just no. a, everything connected on a day? And, and well, honestly, I saw myself primarily as a two miler first. I saw, I, I saw it as two mile, mile, two mile, one mile, two. Wow. Um, OK. And I. Early that season, I won the, the meet, pretty pretty well-known meet in this area called the Magruder Invitational. I won the two-mile there and set the meet record. I'd run like I'd run like 949 in our league meet, but I ran 922 in this meet and set the meet record and beat two of the guys who were actually all met that year, who had actually been voted all metropolitan, you know, because they, because they had the times. When I ran, and I didn't run as fast as they ran, because those guys ran like 9 and 10, 9 11, actually, but head-to-head, I was able to beat one of them. His name was mm-hmm. Kent State. I was able to beat Kent head to head, you know, 
And, and but then, so when did the nine sixteen? Was that a, a late season? Uh, so nine nine sixteen came later. Um, it was actually in Chicago. Okay. And it was at an, and I actually got invited to an all. It was a, quote an all American meet. Um, okay. So they actually at my time actually had popped enough where I actually got where I actually was invited to a national meet. Okay. And made and made high school American in two mile because I finished fifth at that meet. Oh no kidding! And, okay. Yeah. And it was wow. it was ridiculously cold. It was like wind chill was probably down near twenty five degrees. Even in late May or early June even or wherever it, it was. Even in early May or mid May, it was yeah. freezing and cold. I, I'm I'm just curious because I, I just put two and two together. You would have been running roughly the same time as Dennis Fikes Cochran, and Dennis also was a really good cross country runner too. Yes, and, and a good yes. miler. And so yes. you guys were in Excellent. some ways maybe cut from similar cloths. Um, yeah. Except in, in college, Dennis obviously was hyper-focused on the mile and Dennis ran 355 in the mile. Yeah. As a matter no, of fact, but... he was, yeah, he was the fastest, yeah. at the time he was the fastest African-American miler in history. <laughs> yeah. But 145 is no slouch, Mark. Let's, let's be clear here. You are really kind of popping athletically um, in that senior year. Had, what had your plan be say in September of your, senior year as compared to the spring did you did you think you were going to go to college were you thinking about something else or yeah i was always thinking about college i was never thinking about running track in college okay um so but college was always on my radar um i had to be, even been doing this kind of weird thing about looking at all these like out of the way colleges hmm. that, I, that i thought were like university of alaska bodwin in maine like and then what I started doing is I started looking, when I first started running, I started looking at these colleges and I looked at, you know, there used to be this track and field guide book. And then I started looking at it in a different way. And I'm saying, like, so what was the conference champion in this conference? You know, before I thought I was me running 146, you know, I said, well, hmm, 156 won this conference. Hmm. They asked me, I should look at this school. You know, like 422 won the Mountains Conference. Hmm. They should look at this school. You know, so that kind of came into play. But I always had college on my radar. I wanted to play baseball in college. That would have been, I could have, I think I could have played baseball in college, but it would have been in a very, you know, like second tier, third tier program. Just so that we set the record straight, what was your position? So my position was third base and pitcher. Okay, yeah. third and pitcher. We had an earlier guest, it was a distance guy, um, Paul McG McGovern, McGovern, right? Yeah, McGovern, and he, he uh, there's a, a notorious, a, a, an amazing tale of a doubleheader and the conference championship on the same day in college. So wow. did want to do both, but how did it all shake out? Uh, well, I didn't want did... to do both until maybe my senior year. My, I, I, was, I was, wasn't focused on track at all until my senior year. Okay. I was only thinking about baseball up until then. But when I started having success in track, baseball totally fell off. I wasn't thinking about oh, okay. baseball anymore. Okay, yeah. so then, okay. Yeah. Okay, so what was the draw to Catholic then? Very interesting story. Coach McGee, who was a head coach at Catholic then, came to McKinley and, and visited me. He said, Mark, you're going to run under 155, and you're going to run under run under 416 in the mile. He said, this is exact words. And after you do that, all these schools are going to be coming after you but i know but i see you as was that 158 half mile then and maybe a 428 miler he says i see your potential and i want you to remember that when all these schools come after you that i was the first one there that's pretty and gutsy for a guy to say gutsy. but it also kind of maybe because also kind of like how i'm wired i mean i think he spoke to my sense of loyalty and i think he kind of knew that about me but i'm somebody who really appreciated affirmation and appreciated someone who believed in me you know and 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 because it reminded me a little bit of and my dad liked him which was important at that time my dad liked coach mcgee a lot okay you know? and so that was kind of important then however i don't think i understood the landscape completely mm -hmm. about how big some of these schools were that were coming after me later like purdue like Arizona State, I don't think I realized that because it, it, and and Georgetown really and Georgetown really really made a strong push for me. As a matter of fact, Coach McGee has a story about how I called him, which is actually a true story, while I was in Dr. Rienzo's office, and said, "Coach, I'm going to Georgetown." And he says, 
and, and then he somehow he convinced me to not commit right there. And I think that story is documented even in an article somewhere, you know. No kidding. Well, so so loyalty was important to you. Obviously, you were a solid student and you, you were going to be able to use to the extent you want to keep running. You're going to be able to use yeah. that. And as you kind of reflect back, what was the final, you know, what was the straw that tipped the scale, right. so to speak? So one thing, I mean, one thing is that, you know, one thing I had, had to go back to that I left out is he had, Coach McGee had a lot of success as a coach up to that okay. point. He'd had a small college team. Back then it was like called like small college, you know, like little All-American, whatever. But his team had actually finished fourth at, we would now be considered Division One Nationals. But they were not a Division One team. His his four by four team had almost won the Division One championships. I saw how successful his athletes were, and how he was good at developing talent. However, but he was definitely more oriented towards the half mile and the as opposed to the two mile and a mile. Coach McGee actually didn't like the two mile or the mile. You know, we didn't like the two mile for sure. <laughs> and, it, it, it strikes me, Mark, uh, in this first conversation with you, that I tell you, when I was in high school, I was nowhere near that analytical, you know, looking mm-hmm. at conference meets and all that. Would you say that, would you describe your thought process? Were you, do you consider yourself an analytical thinker on, on, on things like that? Yeah. And I think people who know me say that's one of my biggest strengths. Analysis and synthesis, I think is what people say okay. is one of my driving forces. I mean, I got a lot of weaknesses too, but I think that's what people would say that was one of my strengths, even even as a younger person. Well, I I can attest to that because I met Mark at the World Championships in 2022. He sat behind behind us and we started chatting it up and pretty much everything he predicted about all the races going on actually happened. So I'm like, okay. okay, he really knows track and field and is very familiar with all the competitors and their capabilities. Okay. Okay. You make the decision. You finally say, Coach McGee, I'm coming. Did you kind of um, recognizing that you were going to do that? Recognizing, or did you recognize at the time that it's like my mile days are over, my two mile days are over, I'm probably going to have to find another event? Or, or how no. did it? No, I, didn't rec- I, didn't, I didn't recognize that at the time because I mean, I think it was a blessing and a curse. My last, the same meet where I ran the 415 Atlanta Track Classic, I anchored the sprint medley relay. And we and I ran a 151. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and we also, I think, set the, the national record for the sprint medley. And it was a big article about it. And I think Coach McGee was looking how fast can this guy run a half mile. That's what he's looking for. Um, that was fast. My, my fastest open had been like 154, but I ran that 151 anchor leg and we just blew everyone away at that meet. And I think that's where he said, well, this guy's a legit half miler. I still, honestly, I still had it in my mind that maybe that by running a fast half, that would have meant even more that I should run the mile and the two mile or maybe at that point we ran the three mile and the 5,000, whatever. But but coach really liked the 800 and the 400 and the, he liked the 800 mile relay. Yep. And I think they get, I think the die was cast then. At, at that point. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know Catholic. And, and, and so schools in that, you know, schools in that conference, where would you, uh, you know, assuming indoors and outdoors as, mm-hmm. as we make the transition from mm-hmm. high school now to, now to college, where would you all compete? Were they board tracks indoors? Um, Give us a little sense of the yeah. local land. So, you know, I don't know if you know who this is. At that time, we were in the Mason-Dixon Conference. Okay. And the top schools in that conference were Mount St. Mary's, us, Towson State. Uh, and then there were other schools like um, Bridgewater was in the conference, Washington and Lee, I believe. And there's one other school, and I'm blanking on it right now. That was a pretty good um, – oh, school from Virginia – I'm blanking right now, but anyway, no but, no but yeah, but, but they had some, you know, they had, they had good runners. Uh, Mount St. Mount, you know, we were kind of the big two Mount St. Mary's and Catholic were the dominant schools in that conference. Mm-hmm. And so for instance, our, our indoor championships, for instance, 
were run at VMI, Virginia Military Institute. That's why indoor championships were run. Okay. Okay. And then, a of good course, facility? And, was that a good facility for the times? It was an interesting facility. I mean, it was a 220 bank track, but it was kind of like tar. It was a tar track. Oh. And, and, and it had um, a stand where you could, where you could like go right as I go in and then you, would, you couldn't see them for about 40 meters and then they come out, you know. So, all kind of underneath or something. Yeah, all yeah. kind of underneath stuff. And stuff went on, stuff went on back there sometimes, you know, in a, in a, in a close <laughs> a race. A few elbows, yeah. <laughs> a lot, very sharp elbows, I imagine, yeah. <laughs> So, but then, but then most of our season besides conference meet was going to the traditional East Coast indoor meets. We go to Mineral's Games, we go to U.S. Olympic Invitational, we go to the Philadelphia Track Classic, we go to the uh, KFC Games in Cleveland. We were mainly focusing on our relay teams and then athletes who got in, invited to invitational races. Like I might get invited sometimes, my teammate Clarence Musgrove might get invited to run the 500, 400. 440 back then and then our teammates would usually go to local meets with our assistant coach but usually i'm not at those meets not seeing what's going on at those meets but so our whole team wouldn't go to these big meets but got it coach would take us to those meets to give us exposure talk to me if you would or us i should say i'm thinking indoors i mean and and those are some wow talk about east coast royalty milrose philadelphia i mean the the cleveland meet i think I've, i've heard about all those 800 versus 1,000. Do you have any thoughts? Um, yeah, I hate, well, you... I, hate the th- I hated the 1,000 first. Okay, why? Here, now, here you're, guy, here you're a guy who said mm-hmm. you were going to be a miler, two miler. You, you, you demonstrated some of the 800. What's it about the 1,000? Because the 1,000, just to me, was just such an odd distance. Okay. Yeah, just a, the, a distance. Just the... Yeah, just the oddity of it. The fact that how did you how do you run the race? Because it was 120, you know, the 1,000 yards. You know how you know how how like, the thousand yards, thousand meters, but the thousand yards, one hundred and twenty yards more than eight hundred. So how do you run it? Do you, you run know, it like an eight hundred? Do you run it like a short mile? In other words, that kind of exactly. And I never totally unlocked that to the thousand. Mm, okay. I never ran what I consider a really really good thousand. Okay. And it seemed like the thousand would have been my event because of the fact that I was a miler and I was a good half miler. But the thousand, I just never liked it very much. Okay. Okay. I'm just curious because it's, you know, it is, it, it doesn't necessarily, well, I mean, people that I've known who've been very successful at 800, very successful at 1500, it's tough. How do you treat it? You know, I think it's the toughest race up the, up and down the spectrum. I think it's tougher than the mile, tougher than the half, tougher than the, than the, than the thousand meters. I think the thousand yards is just a weird outlier, U.S. indoor. Distance that only exists on the East Coast indoor season. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to us a little bit, if you would, about the national scene that I, I, I'm maybe I'm, I'm guessing here, but you would start because of the relays and everything else. I'm guessing whether it was initially Division Two and then ultimately Division One, mm-hmm. you are getting exposure on that national stage too, beyond these right. luminary kind of events. Right. How? how what was that like in that era? It was some of it was surprising, you know, in a way, because like I said, you know, like just like when I talked about in high school, I started like running against and actually beating some of the guys that I was reading about. The same thing kind of happened in college. Guys who I had kind of been seeing in newsprint, guys who had been even seeing maybe the previous year on television, even at some of the meets that were televised. All of a sudden, a year later or two years later, I'm running against them. And I, it was kind of, like I said, it was surprising to me. And then sometimes I was didn't even realize I was going to a meet, that I even qualified for a meet. Like I remember when I went to D2, well, College Division Nationals, I thought my season was over. But I had run, you know, but I was actually, said, Coach, we got one more meet. I said, oh, one more meet. I'm like, what is it? So I went to Wabash, Indiana, my freshman year, to run the uh, College Division Championships. I didn't even know I had quali- I didn't even know I qualified. I didn't know, you know there was such a meet. And then the next year, I think the Nationals were at Eastern Illinois for Division Two then, and I won that. And then that t- and that qualified me for Division One meet. And then Division One meet qualified me for the TAC championship. So within two years, I was actually running against Wall Hooter and Walker and Keith and Byron Dice and all those guys. You know, we were all in the mix together. But it came fast. 
but it also kind of was a little surprise. Urus losing. I mean, all all those guys, Rick Brown, I mean, all those guys. You know, we were. I was in the mix with them. You know. I wanted to talk about some of those guys because that was a, a the real heyday of some of those middle distances. Rick and and Belger and James Robinson and all that, uh, and Keith. As we make that, uh, right. that oh, and of course, Mark, Mark, of course, Mark Belger, Ken yeah. Chapter. <laughs> yeah. So tell yeah, so guys. indoors first, probably then outdoors. How you know when you started knocking heads with them, so to speak? What was right. so yeah. it started indoors? You know, and we had like. Uh, a mini rivalry, I guess you could say, with Villanova because I don't think Villanova really considered us a rival. We considered them a rival. So we, but we were going at Villanova a lot, and Villanova was usually there. Were a lot of there were a lot of there were several races where Villanova was one, we were two. Um, okay. And and that became our thing, you know, beat Villanova, and it helped us, I think, realize that. I mean, I mean, I think I anchored at national at national indoors, the AAU championships, the indoor championships. And, and we ran Villanova step for step. And I think we thought we had to race. I, I got to stick with Jim Gregan, who was a two-miler, right? right. But he held me off, and they won. And then we look, look I said, and I look back, and everybody else was like 30 yards down the track. You know, Manhattan, Texas, all those schools were like way behind us. And I was like, wow, we are, you know, we're really on a big stage here. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know so it kind of like, but then mostly indoors that first, it was mainly the relay. I wasn't running a lot of big open races indoors every now and then, but mainly it was the relay. And Coach McGee wanted it that way. He wanted us to sort of get comfortable with the relay, be able to marshal our strength on the relay, and then also maybe run against Villanova where we're fresh and they're running like their second or third race to me. And it made sense to me. It made sense to me, you know, because I understood what, what he was thinking and how he was calculating that stuff. You know? So what's your first recollection of if, um, of meeting Keith Francis? So my first recollection of Keith, I mean, I met Keith at some meets, some indoor meets. I had met him at, but the first, the, my first strong memory of Keith, that I see four championships and we were taking like a shuttle van to the meet. And at that time, again, I thought of Keith you know, we were both freshmen. Keith was the same age as me. But at that point, I thought of Keith as kind of like a star and me as kind of like just an upstart, right? And then to even emphasize that, when Keith got on that bus, I, I, to me, he looked like a rock star. I mean, he had on this long brown, like camel hair coat. He had this perfect afro. And I was like, man, this guy's a star. <laughs> you know, and he was also very, very fast, obviously. And also, we also knew about the fact, because we didn't even seen him shooting. You know, we knew he also was a very good basketball player. And we also knew he was like a top thinker as well. And that's another thing that impressed me about Keith, is Keith, Keith was a thinker. And I saw myself as a thinker, but I felt that Keith was thinking on another level at times, you know, which kind of was, was kind of inspirational to me. And we talk about a lot of stuff that wasn't even track related. Okay, that's where I was going. I was curious about that. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what kinds of things you would would uh, what things would you talk about? I mean, if it wasn't strategy and, and how you're going to beat up on yeah, each other. Now, now, and I want to say everything we talked about wasn't high level, but I would yeah, say yeah. we, you know, a lot of philosophy. We talked about philosophy was one, okay, and also um, just we talked a lot about human performance. Interesting. Okay. Like, like how you could, you know, like, like what you and I was be honest. I was trying to, I was trying to pick Keith's brain. Because I think I felt Keith had unlocked something which was giving him an advantage over me. The, the fact that there was, because once I realized I could actually run with him, there was still something that separated us. Like okay. he, and, and I would say, Keith, how are you always able to beat me in big races? How can we be running like almost the same times, but then we get to like NCAA, you're like winning or finish second, and I'm finishing like sixth or seventh. He says, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> So, but did you have a sense, Mark? Did you have a sense if it was the mental, the imagery, you know, yes. that, that, yeah. okay, so it wasn't the physical. It was a physical too. I mean, let me, don't, don't get me wrong. Keith was a yeah. great, talented athlete, but he also had another dynamic, which I think was the mental and the strategy, the strategy and the focus and just seeing it became a thing later. But I think Keith was probably an early adherent 
of visualization. I don't, you know, I think he was visualizing how races oh, should interesting. be okay. should come off because he seemed to be able to manifest whatever he was talking about. And, that's interesting because yeah, right. And, that's a that's an eighties right. innovation, not right. a seventies innovation, right? right? But I think Keith, without without labeling it that, I think that's what he was doing. So, I mean, you are now you're running with the cream. You, I mean, you you you've got some of these big names, and you're probably going through. I'm guessing because you're division two, but then based on performance, you can get to go division one and, or otherwise some of these big races. So did you ever feel like, I'm not sure how to describe it. Did did that put any pressure on you or, you know, that you had to kind of jump through another, another hoop to get to that? I mean, actually, I think it alleviated pressure. I mean, I think that was, that was the good part of it. I felt that this was a good preparation Mm -hmm. for, because I would be running a lot, a lot of races up until big races, right? Yep. So I'd be running my typical meet. Like if I, if I was at an, an invitational meet or if I was at a um, an open meet, my typical meet was mile, half mile, four by four, almost every meet. And then a lot of meets, and some meets I'd actually run four by, I'm actually on Catholic. I was on Catholics until this past season, record four by one team. So sometimes I'd run four by one third leg Walk to this, you know, how that a lot of meets work, work then. The four, the 440 relay was first, then okay. the mile. So a lot of times I'd run third leg, four by four, hand off to the anchor man, walk to the finish line, and then run the mile. That was a common thing for me. But, but what we were doing, I think, what I think coach's mindset was just using the meets just to build more strength, yeah, you know? yeah, and so. And then so so then what he would do to, then once we got to the championship season, then I would run fewer races, and so I think I still had the strength and the energy once we got to yeah. championship. Now I will say one thing: the running, but what but eventually, but the year the year I finished seventh at NCAA's Division One in mm-hmm. um, in Austin, that was rough because I ran IC four A's three rounds, Division Two championships three rounds and then NCAA division one, three rounds. So I, oh, I ran a lot. Yeah. So they were, they were, they were running unnecessarily extra rounds at IC4. I don't know why we had to run three rounds that we did. Three rounds at uh, <laughs> division two yeah. and three rounds at division one. And, and, and I would be, I'd be remiss not to note that you were the national champ uh, in 74 and 75, eight, right. 800 meters. So right. you sandwich that in there at that level on top of all of that. Uh, Mark, as you look at that arc, 73, 74, 75, 76, where did you, in retrospect now, as you as you look back, mm-hmm. where where was the, where were you at your peak? I guess is maybe think, what, or, or I mean, those experiences that really- yeah. I mean, I think 74 was, I was at my peak. Okay. And for some reason, for, for a multi- multitude of reasons, I wasn't able, I didn't maintain it. I, in 75, I jumped back up a little bit in 70, I jumped back up in 76. In 76, I was probably faster than I've ever been, but but there were some other factors, which I mean, I can or cannot talk about. I mean, I can talk about if you want, that, in, that impacted what happened to me in 76. But in 74, I was on the come up for, for real, um, but- No pressure, um, in other words. Is that what you mean? Mm, kind of no pressure? Well, there was, there was little pressure. And actually, I remember, going and i remember people my club coach really having second thoughts about sending me to la for the tack meet because i had finished you know because running for catholic and finishing seventh at ncaa that's that's a long way to go for someone who only finished seventh at the ncaa division meet and these guys will be faster because you've got you you got guys like wall hooter and all you know and all these um non-collegians running as well, right. So I had to convince my coach that my, my my summer coach, my club coach, to send me to LA. Right. And how I did that was, she basically told me, just you know, run a six hundred right now, and if you don't run one eighteen, we can't send you. Can't send you. Mm-hmm. So I just jumped on the track, ran one eighteen. Hey, can I go now? So um, I think I ran 146 on at Division One meet is because I was finally worn out. 
because of all the rounds. I think I ran really well at the division, I mean, at the TAC meet because I was rested. And I really wasn't training much, but I think I had done all the work and I was very well rested. I think that's what helped me perform well then. But but then I think the other the flip side of that was I was probably undertrained after that because I thought my season was over. Okay. And then I get a phone call where they say, Oh, you are a US team in Europe. And I was like, What's that? <laughs> you know, so. What was it so uh what was it like to be in Europe? You you'd spent most of your time, yeah. you know, bi coastal every once in a while. You get to the West Coast, but mostly it was mm-hmm. indoors and in the northeast and mm-hmm. then, you know, when the so, snow finally melted. Yeah. So when so going to Europe, I mean the first stop was Stockholm. Our first stop on that tour was Stockholm. And I remember the weirdness of the day night situation then. And I was totally talking about being on my game a month before three weeks before I was totally off my game there. I mean I and I could and I was and like I said I was under trained. I could never I mean I was running one fifties. You know, I was running I was running high one forty nine, one fifty. I was not on my I was off my game. And there but there because there was so many meets, there wasn't enough time to tr- to get trained back up. Right. So I kind of just had to endure that that um I kind of like I tried to gut it out. I tried to run, but I didn't run very well, and I mean I didn't run very well at all on that tour. There was, except there was one meet where I caught a break. I think I, I made the podium one meet. But it was like a sixth place they, they, when they were awarding six awards, and the eight hundred was kind of like the secondary meet. So I, so I, I and I, and I kept that. I still have that one of the few medals I still have. It was it was in Milan, and that was one of the few medals. I mean not at Milan Torino one of the few medals I still have because it was my only medal, my only podium for that whole tour. And it was a sixth place. Well, but you're, you're, you're getting, you're mixing it up with, you know, some probably incredible athletes. Yeah, I was, but I was also feeling a little regret that I wasn't still, and I wasn't at my top form like I was weeks before that. Yeah. But then, but I learned from that, you know, I, I also learned in Europe that the, that experience counts in that environment. So, after 76, or is, is there anything in 76 you want to make sure that we uh, kind of uh, well, cover well, between? I think, well, 76 was when I when I set the pin relay split record okay. with the 145, yep. which I think is still number seven on the list. The Super Shoes haven't wiped it off the list yet. Um, but also, that was also the Olympic trials that year, and and which didn't end well for me because it was the only – my semifinal race, the only disqualification I ever had in my whole career was getting wow. DQ'd in my semifinal race, which, I mean, I think I, I think it's like I would have I barely inched into the final, but, but I've, you know, you still believe you make the final, you got a shot, right? But honestly, I was kind of probably a little past it. Walt Hooterman, Robinson, and Belger, and Inyard, Mark Inyard was another guy we didn't talk about who was also, okay. You know, okay. those guys were on their game. And I was running 147, but I was struggling. Now, you know, did so Keith make the? Did Keith make the? Keith made the final. Keith made the final. He made the final. I think he finished. Yeah. I think him and Tom, Tom McLean and Keith, I think finished seventh and eighth. Okay. And that showed you how deep that field was, right? Oh <laughs> so, man, yeah, that had to be what, like probably one high or maybe low 147s, maybe seventh and eighth, probably at that point. Or yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is deep, especially in the era, you know. Yeah, because Walt was going 144. Yeah. And easily, Jr. is running 145. Yeah, you know, running about 146 flat. I think 146 flat. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, th- I think. Like I said, I mean, I'm just saying it was deep field, and but I think just under 146 would have made the team. Mm-hmm. I believe. Okay. Um, you know, I don't like to make excuses, but that was a rough time for me okay. because my dad had just had my, my dad had died recently. Oh. And and then that kind of took a lot of this spirit out of me to be honest you know like after pin relays when i ran at 145 at pin my dad died exactly two weeks after that and that was a tough time a very tough time for me because my dad was like my best friend he was only 50 years old when he passed yeah. oh too young so, too oh God. Yeah, yeah. yeah i'm sorry to hear that um so coming out of that you you're you're kind of emerging uh recovering and it's a time when track wasn't a way to, you know, you really couldn't make money yeah. at it. You couldn't, right. you know, so how did you be, 
did you have conversations with the guys or what were you thinking about? You still had the bug to a degree, even with right. some of the loss and all of that. But right. So I got lucky in the sense of, I mean, I guess my expectations changed where I wasn't really thinking Olympic level, but I wanted to still compete. And we had a good, but I also was lucky that we had a good club in D.C. The D.C. Striders that became D.C. International. And it kind of like, you know, kind of like morphed, like it started out D.C. Striders with Glenda Moody. And then it became D.C. International with Fred Sarby, who was one of the top indoor superstars at the time. You know, because he kind of almost took over. You know, Martin McGrady. Fred kind of took over that mantle for winning the 600s indoors. After after Marty fell off a little bit, then Fred was the, dominating those races indoors. So we had guys like Stan Vincent on the team. We had uh, Dennis Walker from Adelphi. Uh, we had so we had a really good squad. Yeah, so and 77, was, 78, right? That right, 77, 78, exactly. And we were going to some – and I was kind of getting some free rides, right, to – some meets where there was still kind of had that big meat feel, hmm. even though I wasn't running any, I wasn't running very many open races, you know, but we, you know, but I was able to, we were able to get our relays in some in the meets and we were running four by eight, pretty good four by eight team actually. So I was, I was able to stay in it that way, but I was, you know, but I was running 149 then and I wasn't running 146. Well, three seconds in an 800 too. It's kind of, that's a, it's a, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. So, did you was there a moment that you reflect back on when you realized I've done about all that I feel like I can with the sport now and it's time to move on or you know think I about mean, honestly, chapter or that, that's a that's a good question. And I think maybe other people thought that more than I did. Hmm. Because I was comfortable being a pretty good runner, even though other people had expectations were still high for me. I was okay running 151, 150, 151, you know, you know, going, going forward because I love the sport and, you know, I mean, I didn't want to perpetrate that I was that guy that we could run 145, 146 anymore, but I also love going to track meets and I loved racing still. Okay. But my coach would just, you know, everybody else was like, Mark, how could you know, how can you go out there and run that? Mm. And I says, well, don't invite me to the meet then. I still enjoy. So I, I probably competed through what 84 maybe i think mm. through 84 you know and i'd run pin relays every year still we'd oh, run like well, a that's that yeah. is we got to ask you about that what is it about pen relays i mean that is something that it, it's 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 different now but nevertheless it's still pretty much yeah. it's not that different yeah i mean i think part of what with, with pen for me was kind of the lore of the the lore and the lure <laughs> you know because we, I had heard about pin relays from older guys on, when I was at McKinley Tech, the upperclassmen would talk about pin relays and almost was like, and it became almost like kind of a mecca that you wanted to go to and, and be a part of, you know, like it was almost like you were, you weren't, you weren't just going, you weren't just traveling to a meet. You were going on a pilgrimage. To me, to me, you were going on a pilgrimage and maybe, and maybe from a good and bad standpoint, because that was almost like my Olympic games which probably may not have been the greatest thing. But to me, I always wanted to run graded pin relays and I always did. I, I, there were some things I didn't always run great at, but I always ran graded pin. And I just kind of, it, it just had, it gave me energy just stepping into, actually just stepping off the bus and seeing all the activity, not even at the stadium, yeah. but outside of the stadium, just would start that energy going. Was the track green? Was that, was yeah, that was still? Yep. Yeah. And then, and then you had the, was it twelve lanes with the with the rail and on lane four or whatever it was, right. you know, something right. like that. Right. Yeah. Right. And I ran in high school. I ran a great race. I ran in high school there, and that's where I first broke one fifty five. I ran one fifty four anchor leg there, and we just missed, you know, because you we ran trials and finals, right? So I just missed. We do we we missed by one place, advancing to the four by eight championship of America mm-hmm. two mile relay, in mm-hmm. when I was in high school. And no DC school at that time was ever running in with, with, the, with the big boys in the two mile relay, you know. God, <laughs> we, so that's a big stuff. It was you know, a big stuff. A, yeah. And but then I but then I got to watch the meet, and as and as as a, as a spectator, I was even more into it, just watching those legendary teams like North Carolina Central's team and yeah. you know UCLA. I mean, they you know they and people would travel to Penn 
you know, now people, now the Southeast Conference that doesn't even come to Penn, right? But right. but then people would travel to Penn because they also saw it as the Mecca. Right. You know. It was. It really was. Help, help us, Mark, paint the arc of running is still in your blood. You're, you know, slowly the glide path to no longer competing. How did the coaching bug come about? How did how did that? So I, I, I coached for my, I was actually, I coached for my club. I was actually started coaching at my club when I was 19. So when I was still competing, I was actually a head coach at DC Stratus. Well, I was the assistant coach at the DC Stratus at 19, became the head coach of the DC Stratus at 21. But I was still in college and I was coaching summer. I mean, I was, I was, I was coaching the summer team, right? Yeah. And Glenda Moody was kind of like the executive director, but she had me and actually my teammate Clarence, we were actually the main coaches of the team. And so then, and that went really well. I mean, we had some, we did some really good coaching. We had some kids really perform well. Then one day, my former coach, Coach McGee, just told me that he wanted me to be his assistant coach. Why? If, if you, did you ever talk, ask him why? Not, not immediately, but we did talk about it later. And he says, one reason is because we've, after your freshman year, he said, you know, we've always been partners. He says, you know, we think we figure out things together and kind of like how I used to think about Keith. Right. He says, you know, you're ahead of the game. You know, he, he told me that he said, I think the two of us together can really coach up these kids that are coming, okay. coming up now. And so that you know, mindset. He, so he recognized yeah. that mindset that you you, you were right. talking. And so he did about. it again, you know, affirming me. Right. So kind yeah. of like, you know, he first got me to go there right now. He's getting me to coach with him and yeah. paying me fifteen hundred dollars a year. <laughs> Well, well, so talk, talk to us a little bit, because this was not a job, what are they, you know, they used to say about the Peace Corps, the toughest job you ever love, right? I mean, in some ways, it sounds like this is kind of what you're in, because you're working right. and not really getting paid for the amount of work you're probably right. doing. And I, and I mean, honestly, I would have done it for free, probably, but I loved, especially the first few years, seeing how to, seeing how, I love to see the development of an athlete. Okay. And, and, and I love to see athletes who maybe don't have much confidence become confident. And also athletes who see themselves maybe as not being super competitive become competitive. And I don't want to get on the, I don't want to get off to get off track too much, but there were some meets that year where we really just ran so far, just punching, like they say, punched above your weight that we really just punched above our weight in some, in several meets that year. You know, and and that's yeah. really that feels good. I mean, I, I've got to believe yeah. that feels really, really good. You know, right. So, uh, the arc of your coaching at at Catholic, uh, first starting with Coach McGee, um, how long did that run? That was a a, a long a long time, yeah. right? So I was with so I was with Coach as an assistant up until ninety four, okay. but then I also but 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 prior to that, I actually. There was a time I was actually the head cross country coach and the assistant track coach. Okay. And so there, there was a period of time where I was the head coach for, for cross country, assistant coach for track. And then eventually just became the head cross country coach, stopped coaching track. Okay. And then after coach retired, I became the head coach for cross country and track. And track. Okay. Yeah. But at the same time, you had you had basically you described off uh, you know off bot podcast uh, that you basically had two full time jobs. So tell us a right. little bit about the the arc of uh, of the the day job, so to speak, or the right. non track job. So I mean, I had a few, but I think the one that was the most substantial and the one that I had the longest consistency with during that time was when I was um, I was there's an organization, large nonprofit organization called NeighborWorks America which is a community development organization. And we basically provide training, technical assistance to the field of uh, nonprofit development. And a lot of those organizations, and there's a network that's called the NH, like the National, the NeighborWorks Network. But also there's like these, a lot of the organizations are called NHS, which stands for Neighborhood Housing Services. And my job was to help come up with trainings, mainly some place-based, some national trainings or regional trainings that help raise the capacity and of employee of staff and volunteers actually 
of those um, housing organizations okay. in, in, in the U.S. And yeah, so so then so that that basically would be convening content matter experts coming up with what we wanted to deliver, synthesizing it down to what we wanted to a course and then delivering those courses to those folks. But what I did was I also was totally transparent about the fact that this has to work within my coaching schedule. So I says, look, I'll work late two nights a week, the other three nights a week, I got to be out of here by a certain time so I can coach my athletes. And then had an assistant coach that I trusted to the days that I came later that could start everything. And so anyway, so that's kind of how that evolved. But I was clear that I, even though this job paid my bills and this job is what you know I relied on, yep. that I wasn't going to give up coaching. And if I had to give up coaching, I'd find another job. Yep. And and my boss was totally cool with that. <laughs> that that's great. And and I'm looking now at a a Run Washington article from I guess towards kind of towards the end of your tenure at at um, uh, Catholic. Yeah. yeah okay. Probably I'm sorry. About, I think the Run Washington article I was coaching high school then though. You're high school definitely. That article, yeah. But you but at some point you felt like you had to step away from the coaching. Right. Yeah. Right. And that. Emotionally, that must have been kind of tough, given the track had been your life in many respects yeah. for a, a very It was, time. and I think there was a lot of factors that went into that. Mm. I mean, one factor was that it really, I mean, my job at NeighborWorks became more and more demanding. Um, however, I also felt that I maybe was not coaching at the same level. I felt that it was maybe a little bit of a, it was a fall off with, mm-hmm. you know, because I was splitting time too much. And I maybe was cutting the time away from the team towards my other profession. And I'm pretty, I think I'm a pretty self-aware person. So I kind of, a, when, when I kind of felt that I wasn't being as effective as I had been, I felt it was time to start transitioning out. And also felt that when any time that I thought it was becoming kind of like challenging or a burden to me, like a little bit of a burden, then I didn't want to be in that position because someone else could do a better job if, you know, if those factors are coming into play, yeah, and that's just an honest assessment, you know. <laughs> so so you, you you cut ties with your alma mater, yeah, you know, there for a while. Again, you're right. You know, circling back to this article, it it looks like that was only a a, a blip, a relative blip in, yeah. in a long well, lifetime. Here. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, really, yeah, I mean, really. I mean, from 18 until whenever that was. I mean, track was always very and much a core yeah. part of my life, you know. So. Yeah. yeah, but the coaching bug came back after a couple of years. How did how did that you know what what did, when did you realize that you somehow had to get back into it? I guess I mean, and, and it's a it's a little bit maybe a little bit too niche, but part of it part of what I felt was happening, and actually I'm not sure if I was able, able ever really effective in this is I just felt that we had some really great half milers come through DC in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Okay. And I felt that maybe recently we weren't seeing those guys. And like I said, I'm sure half-mile talent or mile talent didn't all of a sudden just dry up. But we became known. I mean, D.C. was known as, you know, D.C. was known as Sprint City, right? So it seemed like everybody wanted to run 100 or 200. You know, and even the 400 was like a distance race to a lot of kids, right? I still have trouble getting guys to run the 300 meters to attract me. You know, how crazy is that? They don't want to, but anyway, so so I just felt we need to really build up this core of middle distance talent because they're there and all and everybody can't run the 100, 200. So the, the talent in those was, was like going to the was the was was kind of going to the the um, private schools and the suburban schools. Right. Honestly, I haven't you know, when I first got there, we had a lot of success has a lot of success convincing kids to step up if they weren't like like going to like really be factors in say the 400, 200. I, I, I convinced a lot of these kids to step up and run longer. However, recently I've been struggling with that. I'll be totally honest. I've been struggling to get middle distance talent to commit. At, to, at the high school. At, yeah. yeah, yeah at, at the high school to commit. But also one offing, I, there was a couple of kids I actually trained kind of like as a one-on-one coach in between that time when I um, ended up between when I left Catholic and, before, and, and started coaching at, at Bell. Bell High School where I am now, mm-hmm. is yeah. that there was some, I did some one-off and some of it was advising, some 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 of it was kind of like 
I have a lot of kids. A lot of my athletes I coached at Catholic became coaches. Oh, and so we have a coaching tree coming back to Mark Robinson. Okay. Right. And, a lot of these, and a lot of times they, I would advise them, especially say around a big meet. Like a lot, a lot of times, you know, I give them like a general, I said, do this for like six or like three months. But then let's really, when we, when we get to your championship season, let's really, really talk. Mm-hmm. And let's really, really map this out. And let's really, really come out with a strategy for your kids. And that was, I think that's where it's, when I saw these kids for the, for my former athletes do well, that kind of was giving me the bug, to be honest. Yeah. So, so um, Mark, so I, uh, I just started doing uh, track and field officiating. I'm kind of brand new, just started, did uh, one day of training down at Tufts University. Then uh, uh, last week, I actually got paid for it. But uh, being, you know, I almost have to pay for I You should probably charge me for this because you're a big time track and field guy coach. What would you say give, for me, giving me advice for being a good track official? Like what, what's the kind of track official you like that makes your experience as a runner or and a coach? Yeah. Good. So it's funny, right? Because when you're an official, you definitely have the rules, right? the rules of the event, the rules of the meet that you have to follow. And I think that that's first and foremost, right? But I, I also feel that there's, I also think that a good official is good into, you know, like you, you can't be like totally engaged with the athletes completely, but I also think a good, a good official yep. can also be a bit of a teacher. Like mm-hmm. for instance, you've got somebody say who's long jumping for the first time. And then I think that I like the officials who will, give a few tips not to say jump faster, but making sure that they understand like when to come back for the event, how to not get disqualified, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, those kind of things I think are things that maybe some officials are very much, very rigid. Some, if, if the athletes know that they are the officials are actually there to help them. I think that adds something. I don't know if that's any, any official rule book or any, thing you learn as as a a trained official but i do feel that's something when i see it because i know that for instance and i'll just be honest i mean like last week my team ran a four by two at uh, our championship meet was crazy this year we ran it too early in the season we had two meets canceled so we didn't have any meets prior to up anyway bottom line is my four by eight my four by two places in the in the in the championship meet but my second leg who was running the four by two for the first time definitely <laughs> was technically had fouled, had 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 run out of his lane, but then he went back in his lane, right? But technically he had fouled. He hadn't gained any advantage. Um, after the meet, I'm not gonna. I don't know if we should. I don't know if I should broadcast. Statue anyway, of limitations. Do we? Are we okay? Uh, are we good? Yeah. So after 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 the meet, you know. When one of the head officials came and looked at me uh, and kind of nodded at me, I said, nodded at him. Yeah, I know what my kid did. Thank you very much for allowing us to 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 not be disqualified. I mean, he, he gained no advantage. Mm-hmm. It was his it was his first race, and he could have been disqualified, like I was at the Olympic trials, right? <laughs> so, and and I and I think I I think I bring that memory, but also I feel that I, mean, I don't want to put I don't want like to put that burden on an official. Because you're kind of looking at what, you know, how the book says it. But I also feel like it's good to be able to like to be an educator you know, in the flexibility. Moment. Be, be an educator yeah. because you're coming there with with experience, right? You're coming there with knowledge. You know, and some of these kids are are neo, real neophytes. Yeah. You know, and I think those are the ones that kind of get a little grace sometimes. Yeah, you know? Mark. Let me, you know, as you reflect back on your time and bringing it forward and, and we're getting at the hour. Um, we're, we're just a bit over here. What's your thought about the sport? Are we in a good place? Um, is it a challenging time? I mean, do you, you've really more than many people have really lived it. You had mentioned just a few minutes ago, this notion of gosh, darn it, there should have been more mid distance guys in the DC area. And now everything mm-hmm. is, is changing. Are you optimistic? Tell, what's, what's your, what's your forecast? Well, on a national level, I mean, the U.S. is in really good shape. I mean, the U.S. is in maybe the best shape they've ever been on an international level in track and field. 
there's some events that we're not so strong in or the U.S. isn't so strong in. But overall, the U.S. teams are so strong right now, almost to the point where almost like I feel they win too much, mm. you know. But, <laughs> but, um, Except by but four yeah, by yeah. one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I, mean, we would, I mean, you got, you got Jamaica, but nobody's, nobody's as good top to bottom, field events, jumps, jumps, throws, sprints, hurdles, we're, you know, we're even going to probably, I, I'm predicting that we have a, at least a bronze medals in the 1500 mm-hmm. at the, um, at, in Paris. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the five to 10 are still East Africa for the most part, but, but, but the U S overall is, is, is very strong. I think what I see as maybe lacking, and I think somebody has to be in that space is, I think maybe it's a little bit of the AAU culture, the, athletes who are not the quick stars and how they get developed. The long-term development arc. The long-term development aspect of the kids who aren't those instant stars. And, and you know, and I think that because somebody needs to hold space for them because you don't know how they're going to evolve. But there's a lot, I think there's a lot of movement towards star athletes and kids who are, who are I also feel like I don't want a I mean, I also have an issue, a little bit of an issue, or maybe a concern about this focus on time with kids, say, under 15, 14 years old. I mean, to me, that's a little bit of, could be a problem, you know, and I think, it, you know, you get burned out, but you don't have to be running super fast at 13, 14 years old, right. you know, allow your body to develop, allow, but I see a lot of that. And you know, my other issue I have is, and I guess this is probably, probably true in other sports, I see too much of parents or coaches, club coaches, try, you know, basically trying to influence what's, what's going on in, say, a high school or college program. You Big know, problem. That, yeah. yeah. That bothers Ron, me. Yeah. Ron, do you want to, do you want to tie that in? Yeah. I mean, it's the whole club sport phenomena and it, it has hit track and fields as well. And we've seen locally here a lot of kids that started out really quick had a lot of success and then you know when the other kids catch up just the mental anguish of that deters them from you know really seeing their full potential so yeah i think that that can is a definite challenge yeah yeah i think it's a challenge i also think that if if they had been if they had been told at some point that it's okay for other kids to catch up right it's that i think that makes a total difference you know could and, and then they they might be less Less anxiety, less agony, less. You know, and that, um, and that's the kids today. I mean, you add the pandemic, you've added all those things, and it's, yeah. you know, that, that I, I'm, I'm was struck by what you were saying there, Mark, because it, it, it's an interesting moment in time. At the top, sounds great, mm-hmm. you know, but there's, there's because, you know, okay I mean, to get because, yeah, right. I mean, because you know, and it's true. I mean, we kind of, it's kind of like Darwinian a little bit, right? Like you know, everybody. We're, we're going to have great athletes at the top, always. The U.S. has just got too much talent. But I just, I just I'm, I'm really concerned about the kids that are kind of the ones that may be late bloomers, the ones that need a little more attention, making sure that they get that. Yeah. yeah. Well, very. It sounds like a coach. And as I look at the look at the hour, it's been a really wide ranging conversation that we've had here in episode four of the Runners Reunion podcast. We've touched on. Uh, Mark's uh, career, the, uh, the an incredible arc, uh, really something that crosses all forms of the co- collegiate experience. You've got and and then some. You've got Division Two. You've got Division One. You've got Tech. You STFFA. Yeah. Before and also, close, I just want to say real quick that I did coach. I mean, I coached Division Three for a long time. Did you? I mean, Division Three. Now, now Mark. Three, yeah. Yeah. So, Mark, I I kind of hesitated here when I introduced you. I said you're either the nine-time or the ten-time All-American. Do, do, do you want to add any clarity to that, or do you want to let that one lie? No, I'm fine with that. No, I'm I'm a ten-time All-American. Okay. And you could say it's by petition, but it also is fairness, right? And the reason that I'm a ten-time All-American is because there was a certain standard of where you had to place in the 70s to be an All-American, say at Division One level, you know, or any level, but, you know, but basically you had to place top three. As time has gone on, more and more 
places have been allowed to be considered all-American to the point where I'm, I can't remember where it's, whether it's 12 or I think it's 16, actually. I think it's maybe 16 now. Um, I think maybe nine, maybe nine through 16 or second team all-American now. And I just didn't think that was fair. And I looked at um, how in 1974, I got third of division one. I mean, I got seventh of division one, which I, to me was a disappointing performance. But looking back 40 plus years at it, I also said, well, why would my seventh place be less important or less impactful than somebody else's 13th place? So I wrote to the United States Track and Field Cross Country Coach Association who managed the All-American Awards and said, look, I want to petition that I'm given an All-American certificate for that year. They wrote back, not with resistance, but just asking for documentation. I was able to, and it's surprisingly interesting how hard it is to get documentation <laughs> when those areas, here is, where it's, it's so easy now, right? So I had to basically go and find old, old newspaper articles with the results in them, send them back to them. And they said, fine, here's your, you know, we're mailing you all the magnet certificate. And that was it. So there it was. You go. That's, that's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. I did a LinkedIn post about it. I think if you, you probably saw that LinkedIn yeah. post. But anyway. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, and as the late great Paul Harvey would say, that's the rest of the story. Yeah. And and so we'll we'll leave you at ten, Mark. We'll mm -hmm. we'll leave you at ten. That's good. But again, it's been a real pleasure meeting you for the first time on this call. A, a delight to kind of hear the track side of the uh, of of the arc. And that interaction with Keith Francis, really a, a, a magical time um, on it the was. boards and on the artificial surfaces on the track going forward, continuing on in the, in the coaching domain and really making a difference in young people's lives, which is really uh, something that uh, is really remarkable and, and, and meaningful for, for sure. Thank you so much, Grant and John right. and Ron.